Welcome. I'm Ross Young, and I'm here with Gmar Cardi, and we are both excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. CISO Tradecraft is a podcast which discusses how to navigate people, processes, technologies, and environmental issues within the information security industry. The show focuses on mentoring the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, we are excited to take you to today's show. Welcome, everyone. We're excited to be here with you today, and we're going to talk about a topic that has recently been one of the biggest buzzwords in cybersecurity, and the topic is zero trust. Now, if you don't know what zero trust is, don't worry. We're going to talk you through it. We're going to give you some clear examples. We're going to give you some how-to pro tips to really make it work for you and your organization. Yeah, trust us. We'll tell you how to do zero trust. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a little rhetorical, but it's going to be fun. So when we think about things, one of the biggest stories or analogies you'll often hear in cybersecurity is the castle analogy which is bad guys are outside the castle and they want to come in and steal the crown jewels. And so we built a moat, we built walls, and we've kept them out. But what we're finding is that's not good enough, right? The traditional firewall that just blocks IP packet filters and that just says, here's this address, it's in or out, isn't good enough to really keep the bad guys out. And we need more sophistication than this. So rather than just relying on keeping the peasants inside safe by being behind a wall, what if we do something a little different? What if we give the peasants some training? What if we make them knights so that they're armored? So if the bad guys get into the perimeter and and get inside the castle walls, if you will, they don't have easy targets to prey upon. They now have to go through armored knights. And oh, by the way, if we take our armored knights and we put them outside the organization, guess what? They're also defended. So this is a different way to view things. And let's start with the very basics. Gmark, what are some zero trust principles or definitions we need to understand if we're going to clearly communicate this to others? Ross, excellent question. One of the things we want to think about when it comes to anything with respect to cybersecurity, for those of us who are in a leadership position or aspiring to leadership position, is it all comes back to managing risk. We want to go ahead and reduce the potential for danger to our organization. And thus, the concept of zero trust involves being able to better protect our resources and our assets. How are we going to do that? Zero trust is a little bit different than the open access or the traditional, oh, I have an ID and a password, and now I'm in my network, I'm good to go. Fundamentally, it assumes a shift in thinking that we no longer have a trusted perimeter. In fact, the loss of the perimeter as a result of cloud computing, Wi-Fi, bring your own device, customer and client portals, etc., means that we can no longer, if you will, get behind the moat, get behind the castle and feel safe. Imagine this paradigm shift then that suggests that the network itself is always hostile. How would you do business differently? Okay, yeah, that's a tough one. All right, let's go one further. Let's assume that unless somebody can cryptographically prove their identity, even if they're in the network, we don't trust who they are. 
Well, that's that's a pretty scary, scary environment, but it turns out that if you start with that as your building premise, you can then build up from there and create a zero trust model such that regardless of the number of intruders, whether it's zero or a lot, regardless of the safety, the security, the perimeter of your network, which is absolute or little to none, you can still carry on business effectively while minimizing risk. That's a pretty good value proposition. Now, what does it involve? One of the thing is, is that we must always validate and verify and authenticate. Everything has to be authenticated. Prove to me who you say you are. Well, I did. User ID and password. Okay, maybe. How do I know it's still you that you didn't step away from your computer? How do I know it's you you didn't lose your credentials? Somebody didn't hijack your session. How about the resource that I'm asking or accessing? How do I know it really is what it says it is? Ooh, okay. So now I start to understand the concept of authentication. We'll get into that a little bit more. And everybody needs to be authenticated. Clients, servers, users, database, whatever it is. The second principle is, okay, great. Well, you've proven who you say you are. Are we done yet? The answer is no. And why? Remember we said that your network is assumed hostile? Are you very happy going ahead and communicating with third parties that are hostile? No. But if you authenticate, you're only communicating with the entities that you trust. Okay. But guess what? <laughs> Unless you encrypt that, your opponents are going to hear all that communication and now you've sacrificed the confidentiality. As a result, we have to go ahead and authenticate everything and encrypt everything. And now that sort of sounds like a rather tall requirement, yet there are tools and techniques and vendors out there and policies to help us get there. And Ross, if we're able to do that, we can actually achieve this zero trust model. Yeah, yeah, I really like it. And, and, and here's the example that I think you have to think about. In a normal organization, do most of your laptops have the ability to go out to the internet? And, and that's probably a yes. And so if they go out to the internet, is there dangerous things on the internet where they can touch and get infected? That's probably another yes. And if they bring all that back, are they already inside the corporate firewall, inside the internal places where that infection can spread? Of course. So this type of reality that we are facing in really forces us to have this almost assumed breach mentality. What do you think, G-Mark? It's an interesting idea because it's not fatalistic. Some people look at zero trust and go, ah, oh, come on, really? Yeah, I'm interested. I get more and more emails. If you Google the term zero trust, you get a ton of ads that pop up, a lot more ads than you normally see for most things because it's believed to be something of commercial value. What's happening with zero trust? If we go and take a look at the traditional model, friend Jill, Bill Cheswick years ago had described his networks at AT&T as a hard, crunchy shell surrounding a soft, chewy center. And many of us recognize that model as a perimeter defense model, which means that if the attackers breach the firewall, they're in. And we've seen an awful lot of breach stories from both organizations as well as government entities and some military entities where once an attacker is in, they get free run. How do we change that parameter? What if we considered, for example, 
everything is a resource. Now, if everything is a resource, we have to go ahead and protect the users. We protect the servers. We protect the databases. We protect every device out there. Also, all communication is secure, regardless of network location, meaning I have to go ahead and prove all of that. By the way, if you're wondering where I'm getting these great tenants of zero trust, I like to say I'm making them up on the fly and I'm brilliant. I'm actually utilizing a brand new publication from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. It's a special publication, 800-207, just came out a few months ago. And in there, they have the tenants of zero trust. All I've covered the first two, all data sources, computing servers are considered resources. Number two, all communications secured regardless of location. And number three, access to resources is granted on a per session basis, meaning that your trust does not last all day, all week, all month. I know when I configure our Azure cloud and I have my users logging in and I use multi-factor authentication, one of the things that is an option out there, which is to say, shall we remember your authorization for up to how many days? The Microsoft default is 30, meaning that once you've 2FA'd in, each time you go back in, you don't have to keep two-factor authenticating. Well, how about if we set that to zero days? That means every single time you come back, you re have to re-authenticate. Bit of a pain? If you're doing it manually, yes, but it meets that principle of access is granted on a per-session basis. The fourth is having a dynamic policy. Observe the behavior, observe the attributes, and ensure that any previously observed behavior is factored into whether or not this is an acceptable level of risk. Therefore, we're going to apply least privileged, limited access, just in time, just enough access based upon our interpretation of that. Almost done. There's seven tenants. Here's number five. Enterprise monitors and measures the integrity and security posture of all owned and associated asset. It essentially says no asset is inherently trusted. That once an asset is deployed, hopefully it is hardened, which means we go ahead and we turn off services and capabilities that are not needed. We ensure that it is secure and protected. And let's go back through and consider rotating them in and out. Well, what do I mean rotate them? As a pilot, I know that when I'm flying a plane, from time to time, and I don't own a plane, but I rent them. They said, ah, the plane's out of service. We got to get in for the thousand hour or overhaul on the engine. Airlines do the same thing. We take an airline aircraft off the line, go through, put the engine on the bench, make sure it's in good shape. Now it's possible that that engine is just about ready to have some serious problems, but we caught it in time because these serious problems usually don't happen before this thousand hour. We fix it all up and put it back on the line again. It's also possible you take this engine off. It looks like it came right out of the box. It's still factory perfect. The point is we do not want to just trust blindly some asset that had been checked out in the past in the event that some covert problem or alteration took place. We didn't spot it. We're going to call them back in and fix it. Number six, all resource authentication and authorization are dynamic and strictly enforced before access is allowed. Now, as I said before, multi-factor authentication, use it everywhere. Do continual monitoring. Ensure that your policy is enforced 
And then lastly, collect as much information as possible and use that to improve your security posture. That means it's not just setting up our static defenses and walking away. It means that we're constantly managing a dynamic environment to give us the ability to reduce our risk through our enterprise through the application of all these tenants. Well, G. Mark, I think those tenants that you just mentioned from the NIST 800 series are actually really interesting. And so we need to think about how do we take these on a tactical level and apply them to an organization? Mm -hmm. And Microsoft has put some really good research that we're going to kind of reference here, and we'll put it in the show notes too. So you'll have the links to NIST and Microsoft. And they identify six different types of things that we need to apply zero trust to. They are identities, devices, application, data, infrastructure, and networks. So we're going to dive into those a little bit and talk about what they mean. And when we're talking about identities, they're not just people. They can be services. They can also be devices, like Internet of Things devices. And these are what you're going to need to know who it is, what it is, what it needs the access to, so that we can verify it with some type of authentication and access control. Right. And and this is designed around least privilege, only give things what they need access to. G Mark, is there any other key focuses you really want to see from strong identities? Yes, Ross. When we look at the traditional way of using identity, typically we just simply provide some credential locally. We don't worry about single sign-on or enabling that. And therefore, the visibility into that identity risk is, well, rather limited. We have no way of knowing is that credential in the hands of the individual, the human who is supposed to have it. We want to make sure that identity is compliant and we follow our least privilege access principles. Well, Microsoft has for these different foundational elements, different levels of maturity, kind of a traditional, an advanced, and an optimal. And we've described the traditional, but if I go to a more of an advanced process, I can federate some of these identities from the cloud with my on-premise and create conditional access policies, begin to improve my visibility through the application of analytics. But if I want to optimize my environment for zero trust vis-a-vis identities, Let's get out of the password business entirely. Let's go completely to multi-factor authentication or some other way. The idea of compromising a user ID and a password resulting in an account being compromised goes away forever. In addition, the user, the device, the location, behavior, we're going to continue to analyze that in a real time, again, to assess risk and deliver the appropriate protection. Excellent advice. You know, we need to think about identities. And and one other thing I I think that's really valuable is what's the time duration of an identity? If an identity lasts for five years, well, that's really important to make sure that we safeguard. But if it only lasts for 30 seconds because it's a little token that changes or a key fob, you, you know, then from there, we're not as worried. 
Yeah, and, it, and that extends beyond even zero trust, Ross. If you take a look at what we now consider best practice with regard to web certificates, if you go to letsencrypt.org, used to be you'd get a certificate for your website and it's good for three years or a year. Now best practice is considered 90 days, essentially three months. Even go to Google, take a look and view the security certificate. It's good for 90 days. And it's not because they like to reissue them all the time because it's fun. You can actually make it painless and automated. The idea is that if any credential somehow got compromised, it's going to expire and you limit the amount of damage that can be done. To go a little bit further on that, I want to point out an example of this concept of with respect to trust. How do we typically think of trust? We think of trust as being, well, binary. Are you in or are you out? Are you a good witch or a bad witch? And based upon that, we then allow you to persist in your current state. In the zero trust environment, we find out that trust is no longer binary. It is going to be something that is going to have degrees of trust. And those degrees of trust can be based upon policy that specify how much validation, verification do you require through your authentication process to actually get access to a resource. The second thing, as we discussed, is limiting the time. Let me quick give you a quick example of the time limitation. Prior to COVID, I did a lot of flying. 2019, I guess, was the last year I was fully flying. 114 flights. Made, uh, gave the airlines a lot of money. And my favorite airline domestically is Southwest. Get in, sit down, shut up, hold on. As a result, I've been an A-list preferred member of that airline. And I think it rocks. I love it. I fly them so often that I have a corporate account. And the Swabiz website has an interesting characteristic. When I know I had a lot of travel to do, I may end up booking five, six, eight, ten 10 flights in a row. And what happens is after about 15 minutes, it says, hey, you need to re-authenticate. You need to re-enter your password. Well, wait a minute. I'm in the middle of a transaction. I just, I just click buy and you answer, yes. Because what happens is they're already implementing the idea that someone is only trusted for 15 minutes. You can keep redoing your trust. And you can do so. But as you can see from a zero trust perspective, that trust renewal becomes part of your policy. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I think this is something where we're going to see a lot stronger identities going forward, very dynamic in nature. So they're always, how do we know your identity right now? Like you're not away from keyboard. And in the next type of category that we see is devices. Now you can think of devices as your phones, as your laptops, as your iPads, or any other hardware device. And when we think of these things, we need to understand, hey, what's their context? Are they only in protected locations like at work where it's behind an armed fence? Or are these devices that people are working from home during COVID times on personal Wi-Fi networks and cafes in personal locations that really aren't considered trusted locations when who knows what the kids are doing on the network, right? So when we have these sorts of things, we need to understand a little bit more about our devices. Are they patched? Is it configured appropriately? Does it have, you know, some type of security tool changing 
uh, monitoring changes of state. So if people are installing things on it, we need to know a little bit more. Gmark, is there anything we 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 see on zero trust and how it relates to devices? Well, sure, Ross. I think a device all by itself, you say, is it trustworthy? Well, I don't know. I need to take a look. If we're going ahead with a traditional security infrastructure, what do we do? We domain join our devices, manage them with group policy or something like that. And the devices have to be on our network to access the data. That's pretty straightforward. And that would kind of go to a normal behavior. In an advanced environment, we're going to register all these devices with a cloud identity provider. We're going to then validate that these devices are really what they say they are. And then we're only going to grant access to cloud managed and compliant devices. In addition, we can enforce data loss prevention, not just for corporate devices, but for bring your own device, meaning that in a BYOD strategy, there's likely going to be an installation of an agent. Wait, my device has to be compliant now? I can't bring a Windows XP laptop on the network? Oh, Why I is love, that? I love Windows XP. <laughs> it, uh, it was the last operating system I really thought I understood. But no, cannot. But in an optimal environment, what happens is we're now going to install endpoint threat detection. And we're going to monitor and provide access control for all these devices based upon what we estimate to be the device risk. Now, because we're constantly managing these devices, I could see when something has happened. Hey, this user has jailbroken this phone. Hmm, I don't think I'm going to let them in my network anymore. They can go ahead and watch cat videos, but they've broken the trust model, and therefore that jailbroken phone no longer gets access to corporate resources. Yeah, just think of anyone in COVID times, right? If they went to a place that they had lots of contact with folks who who had this disease uh, or or flu, if you will, well, we might put them in quarantine to protect the herd from when they come back. So this this place where we put a laptop in, where all it can do is download patches and get to a healthy state, is something where we can enforce this good compliant area and in making sure that we have effective controls to prevent bad things from entering our network. Mm -hmm. The next one we, we can look at here is applications. Now applications are web applications. They can also be APIs that are used uh, by modern services, right? They can be on the cloud. They can be on prem. They can be in some type of hybrid environment. And you know what? They may not be visible. They may be done by shadow parts of your organization, commonly known as shadow IT, where somebody says, I'm going to get this. And, oh, it's free. So I didn't have to tell IT department around it, but I've, I'm hosting our marketing website on it. Okay. Well, good to know. <laughs> that can go a little scary. Right. And uh, so we need to understand our applications. We need an effective asset inventory where we can, you know, do things like monitor for abnormal behavior, control user actions, validate secure configurations and and have things like decent permissions where we say not everybody on the open Internet has access to these things. Only approved users do. Yeah. And if you think about it, our traditional approach has been what? If you want to access an on-premise application, you have to be there on the physical network. 
but wait, I'm working from home. Okay, you can use a VPN and maybe some critical cloud apps, but that's not zero trust. If we then go and advance our technology a little bit, we then take our on-premises application, internet facing, cloud apps, configure them all with single sign-on, a big, strong, hard validation that you really are who you say you are, and then let's take a look at this. Wah, who knows where the cloud IT is? And assess that and determine in our organization about the fact that what happens with regard to um, things that are in the cloud, how do we do that this way? And lastly, the optimal would be what? All apps use least privilege with continuous verification. That is to say, what we want to make sure is you can only get to what you need to and not much more, and we dynamically control that. Now, one of the things about being able to access everything, and I was kind of mentioning with Ross a little bit earlier, is I had, I had served in the Navy, and as a result, as you go through a ship under normal weather, you can go back and forth. You go stem to stern, below decks, life is fine. But if you're heading into rough weather or worse yet in a combat situation, what happens? We'll go ahead and go to general quarters or we'll lock everything down, dog down all the hatches, close everything, go down to what they call condition zebra. At that point in time, every hatch is closed. Why? In the event that you have an intruder, in this case, water, the intruders don't know how to open a hatch. Water can't figure out how to turn that handle and open the door, but humans can. As a result, humans are still free to come and go, but at each particular portal, they need to reauthenticate, if you will. Are you a human? If you can, lift the handle. Are you a wall of water? Try it. It's not going to work. As a result, maybe it's a bad analogy, but it kind of gets the idea that the only things that are going to work now are those that have been validated or authenticated. And every single time I move through my application chain or my network, I have to prove that again and again. Yeah, and we're really seeing advanced federated identities play out on applications, right? So historically, you might have managed an application role uh, with LDAP or Active Directory, where you say, here's the following users who can read the site. Here's the following users who can edit content on the site. And here's the admins over the site. And that was good when people would log in that way. But the problem is we saw attackers really fuzzing all sorts of passwords to try to break in. So you'd put different types of login limits that, hey, you got five bad ones coming in. Okay, we're going to pause your account for 15 minutes. But really now we see the, the federation of using uh, identity management tools like Ping ID and others where we can do a single sign-on and really have something that ties into a multi-factor authentication. So I think we're going to see some really enhancements on these across companies as this becomes the norm going forward. Mm -hmm. Now, if we look at the fourth topic here, it's data. You need to think of data as another type of asset because that's what you're really protecting. You're not, you don't really care about the application. Yes, you want it secure. You really care about the data behind the application, right? Where possible, data needs to remain safe. It needs to remain safe in transit. It needs to remain safe in storage. 
And we need to make sure it's safe on the applications, on the infrastructure, on the networks. And not only that, but you actually need to classify your data, right? Because if you don't know if this is social security numbers or private banking card numbers, or this is generic log information, well, you're going to have some issues when it comes compliance time, right? Yeah. And then, I mean, it, it really has got to be almost become part of your culture. As a military officer, I can tell you that every document I ever looked at, other than just normal paper routine, if it were classified, it had a classification marking, not only on the cover, but on every page and on every single paragraph. And from time to time, when information is declassified and, and published out either through a FOIA or something like that, you can see these things with a little parenthesis, some letter parenthesis. Sometimes that part's blacked out. Sometimes it's not. It essentially says that this information is labeled. Traditionally, access to data is governed by what? Our perimeter controls. Once you're in, you're in. Hey, you've got access to the H drive. You can see everything up on that server. And if there are any labels, they're applied perhaps haphazardly. As we get to go a little bit farther in a more advanced approach, we can classify data. We can label it, maybe keywords or a regex that's looking for it, and then make some access decisions there such that we can pro progressively encrypt things. That is to say, the most sensitive things uh, require access. If a user doesn't have the keys, you can't get to them. In an optimal environment, we use smart machine learning methods. We no longer have to rely on people remembering to do that. And DLP or data loss prevention policies are going to ensure that we can track these documents, that this encryption process is done correctly. And now you don't have the least privilege to see something, you don't get to see it. And we track it everywhere the data goes. Yeah. And and you could, if you think about it, Let's, let's see how the technology has evolved. Just by classifying data, we can now do something called data loss prevention, which says, okay, this data is classified as sensitive. Now, when it is sent through the network, that may be okay if it's internal, but if it's being sent external to a third party and it's sensitive, is that okay, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if it's sensitive, maybe not, right? If it's a trusted vendor, it could be, but probably not for some generic Joe Schmo email that you're sending out. So using that really helps. And another thing that data allows us to do is identify anomalies, right? Mm -hmm. If we can use tools that monitor usage on data, we can see spikes. So let's say the average executive might open, you know, something like five Word docs in an hour. But if a hacker got onto that executive's laptop and he wants to start pulling through all the, the files to figure out what he can ransomware and lock down, he may be opening up a lot of files and downloading those locally to his machine. And so we might see spikes on the data associated from this executive account. Well, that could be a good warning sign where you'd want to, to alert on because, hey, Maybe we missed it at the identity. Maybe we missed it on the device and the hacker's already there, but the data is the tipping point here. That's an excellent idea and, and principle really, Ross, is that 
fundamentally, when we're managing risk, if we look at CIA, confidentiality, integrity, availability, what is it that we want to maintain the confidentiality of? The fact that we're using Microsoft 365? No. The fact that we're using this tool? No. The fact that the data that we have has sensitive information? Yes. Again, with respect to integrity, now that stretches both to the tool sets we're using. We don't want to be using trojanized applications, but also we want to ensure that our data has integrity. We don't want someone changing all the eights to nines before we release their financial reports and getting into real trouble. And then availability, having lost access to the data that we need to make business decisions becomes a risk. So both C, I, and A are all elements here that are going to touch our data. Yeah. And, and I love when Sunil Yu said CIA is now starting to become replaced by the new paradigm of DIE, D-I-E. Make sure your data is distributed. Make sure your data is immutable. And make sure your data is ephemeral, right? And if we think of distributed as it's not stored in one place, that gives you high availability. It's immutable. Well, if somebody can't change it, well, now I have high integrity. And the last one of ephemeral, well, if the data is only good for 30 seconds, then when it's lost, I don't have to worry about confidentiality that much because in 30 seconds, the data is no good. You know, you had me going at the D and the I, I'm thinking blockchain, but then when you get to the E, it's like, eh, doesn't work. So we'll keep looking for solutions. But yeah, Sunil's got always had some really cool ideas. Anyway, let's keep going. What else, what else are we looking at in terms of our foundational elements here? So the next one we have is infrastructure, right? And infrastructure can be on-prem servers. It can be virtual machines. It can be containers or microservices. And it's really another major threat vector, right? There's always a ton of patching that you have to do on infrastructure. There's always a, a ton of configuration checks that you have to do. You have to assess for versions. You have to make sure that they have these hardened defenses and you can detect with anomalies when those things are being attacked. You can detect when those things are not configured well, and you have the ability to block and flag risky behavior so you can take protective actions. Mm -hmm. G Mark, have you had any tips in, in your career of, of what you can do to harden and, and get to some optimal infrastructure? Well, Ross, if we think about the traditional approach, what happens? We we configure our servers based upon what we're running on it, what workloads. Hey, this server is going to have this program. We got to manage it. We manage these permissions often manually as we set up these access rights. That's that's traditional and it works, but that's not zero trust. If we start to move toward a more advanced approach, we're going to monitor these workloads and, as you had indicated previously, look for abnormal behavior. Well, wait a minute. This is just not being used the way it normally is. All of a sudden, there's this huge spike. Why is that happening? And then for humans to get access to resources, we make it just in time. You don't have an ongoing open door for things. When you need it, it's there. And when you don't need it, it goes away. A little bit back, if you will, to Sunil's DIE with the ephemeral. And at the optimal level, any unauthorized deployments are not only blocked, but we trigger an alert. No one's able to go ahead and and do the shadow infrastructure, the shadow IT. We just don't let that happen. And with good, solid, granular visibility across the control sets 
and having access controls that are managed at a tight, tight level and segment out all these resources. In fact, there's a concept called micro-segmentation. Quick aside, if we take a look at a network at layer two, everything is going through a switch. Everything can talk to each other and address each other by their MAC address. Great, that's incredibly efficient. If I want a super fast network, I put 30,000 entities all on a flat network and everybody talks to everybody, zoom, 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 and everything goes quickly. However, think about the same equivalent of putting 10,000 people or 30,000 people in a stadium and some of them have COVID. And everybody's at tight quarters, they're coughing, they're breathing, they're shouting, they're yelling. What's going to happen? That infection is going to spread rapidly. We traditionally use segmentation to be able to say, okay, fine, we'll build like the equivalent of these watertight doors, like I mentioned for my Navy ship. But in micro-segmentation, we're going to chop everything down in little, 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 tiny, fine segments. Just because you're here doesn't mean you can get next door. Just because you can see dot two doesn't mean you can see dot three. And as a result, in our zero trust environment, that granularity is what allows us to manage this infrastructure to the point where we know what's going on. Okay. Those are great points. I think that is so key. And, and the one final comment I would say on this is, how do you make this a core competency? It's really not going away anytime soon. But if you can get really good at it, so every time you fix this, it's not a manual change, but you can start to automate the process, you will really build something for your organization that's going to set you apart and make it a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Now, the last topic we want to focus on here is networks. And, and they're a little different than infrastructure, right? You know, this is typically all of the, the Wi-Fi routers, the Cisco Juniper devices that you may have. And what they do is they provide the pipe overlays that connect everything across the network and allow things to move laterally. And similar to infrastructure, you should segment them, right? You might have a restricted network a public network, and in different ways where you can go. But you should also look at micro-segmentation on these networks and how you can create things that provide real-time threat protection. Maybe this is a honeypot in your network that might be the, anybody scanning this, we got some problems, right? Mm -hmm. And in and, and going through the, the basics of making sure you have an, an encryption across your networks and looking for monitoring, Right. If all of a sudden we're seeing huge data spikes from our NetFlow activity, well, why is that occurring? Are we just doing our monthly backups and, and that's normal? Or is that somebody doing something inappropriate with our data? Right. Yeah, Ross, as you mentioned that, I realized I kind of conflated both infrastructure and networks with my comments about well, micro segmentation and things such as that, because we can do both. Back over with regard to the infrastructure, you're talking about a surge in network traffic. Sure, we can pick that up, but the applications themselves can be instrumented and let us know. As you'd mentioned, in a traditional network, the network is probably not encrypted. And as a result, it may be this flat open network, as I was kind of mentioning before. As we go to a more advanced approach, we could then potentially go ahead and filter internal traffic, encrypt certain requirements, and start to do the segmentation. But if we get to an optimal environment, we've got fully distributed micro perimeters. We use machine-based learning for threat protection. 
And as we said at the beginning of the broadcast, all of your traffic is encrypted, which brings up an interesting characteristic of what if you have a server, now we're gonna start putting the pieces together, I've got a device that's running on my network that is going to be a potential target for attackers. Is there a way that I can make that have a force field, so to speak? That is to say, for legitimate users, they can access that. But intruders, assuming that they got in there, because after all, Zero Trust Network assumes there's something bad in there, they can't even see it. And it turns out there are technologies for doing that. We can set up our, our devices to only speak IPsec. And we can say, don't talk TCP, don't talk UDP only insists that layer four protocol of type five zero is in use. Now, if an attacker gets in there and tries to do a ping sweep or goes an nmap and tries to log in and get to systems, it's as if they're not there. It's just like they're invisible. And yet a legitimate machine is already pre-configured with the correct encryption keys. And we already have that shared trust model. Off you go. I like it. It's kind of a fight club approach of the first rule about that network is you don't talk about the network. How cool. Yeah. And, and, and it does work. And what's interesting is as you get into these type of environments, it's a matter of configuring them such that, as I say, you just don't talk to anybody else. Now, there are tool sets for doing that. Uh, FWNOP is one, which is essentially a pretty clever tool. It allows one to essentially take a system, put the firewall up, block all that incoming traffic. FWNOP, by being able to send it on the correct port with the correct information, because it's based upon an HMAC on a shared key or a shared secret, one could essentially say, Scotty, lower the shields. And as a result, if you try to go ahead and SSH into port 22, scan port 22, go ahead and run an NMAP, nothing there, but fire off into the abyss that UDP packet that's got just the right information to the right port number, and all of a sudden, the shields come down for just a few seconds, long enough for a legitimate logon to take place. Then the shields go back up, blocking any additional connections, but the existing trusted connection remains going. And if you do a quick YouTube search for FWNOP, you'll find about a three-minute video that illustrates that brilliantly. And it's only got about 2,000 views on it. And I probably account for several hundred of them because I love showing it to different students and audiences about how all of this works. Very cool. So we, we've put these six pieces together, identities, devices, application, data, infrastructure, and networks. And what we need to say is how do we take all of those, create some policies that say, this is what is going to be allowed, and this is what's not going to be allowed. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely some good resources. We're going to invite everyone here who wants to learn more about it. Please, please, please check out the NIST SP 800-207. That's a great place to learn, as well as the Microsoft resource if you are interested in, in doing a deeper dive, there's even a good survey where you can assess your organization and see where you are with Microsoft. So that's another fun uh, tip that you can take back to your organization. Mm -hmm. Well, we want to thank you again for listening. And we, we ask that if you found this to be valuable, please share it with your colleagues. 
you know, our show grows when you tell others and, and they get interested. And hopefully you you enjoy learning just as much as we enjoy sharing our knowledge. And please share, share, share. Absolutely. And, and take credit for sharing it with us. We don't care. They say credit him is infinitely divisible. If someone says, hey, thanks for telling me about that CISO Tradecraft show. That was awesome. Hey, good on you. And if someone says that to you, let us know. It's always nice to get a little bit of positive feedback. And, and it just brings us such delight when we hear the stories of our subscribers listening, you know, and sharing these stories. I heard one from, from a colleague of mine where he said, I love the episode where you talked about how to compare software. And we were doing a software rebid, and I shared that with all my colleagues, and instantly we were able to build a quick plan that helped us as an organization. Mm -hmm. and, and that just cheered me up. You could not believe how excited I was to hear that. So if you have any other stories, share it with us. We'd love to hear how we're making an impact and what we can do. And if you have ideas for the show where, hey, G-Mark, hey, Ross, I really want you to talk about this topic, please send those in on our CISO Tradecraft website. We're happy to, to go into those. And, and, and we love learning from you just as much as we love sharing our ideas. So thanks again for listening. We always ask you to subscribe to the show share as much as you can, and wish you only the best in your CISO journey. Enjoy the tradecraft. Until next time, take care and stay safe.